morning, everybody. Um, good to see you all. Enjoying this nice 60-degree weather or whatever it is. So, If you want to stand with me, we'll begin um, with the call to worship this morning. And I was thinking about it this week. It's kind of become popular to use this word worship to only refer to when we sing, right? I'm ready for worship, usually meaning just the singing part, and then some guy gets up there and talks for a while. But the call to worship is reminding us that all of what we do during this time is worship. Not only singing the word, confessing the word, um, confessing our sins, all these great things. So just remember that as we, we do this call to worship that we actually sang last week, uh, taken from Psalm 100. I'll read the bold section if you'll follow along after me. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. And come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people, and the sheep of his pasture. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving, and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name. For the Lord is good, his steadfast love endures forever. His faithfulness to all generations. Amen. If you want to remain standing and turn to hymn number 253, we'll sing, Come Now Found.
Exodus 20, 14 brings us to the seventh commandment. You shall not commit adultery. It's pretty straightforward, isn't it? If we go to Matthew 5, I believe it's 27 and 28. It's almost as if the, the Old Testament there in Exodus speaks to the, the uh, letter of the law. And Matthew speaks when Jesus is explaining even more and more is the spirit of the law, if that makes sense. There's nuances that, you know, you, can, you had the Pharisees walk around saying, well, I've never committed adultery. And he brings it to a whole nother level. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, the letter of the law. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Would you pray with me this prayer of confession? Heavenly Father, holy is your name. You are high and lifted up, set apart and exalted. Yet we, like sheep, have gone our own way. Whether internally or externally, we have all broken your holy commandments. Forgive us, Lord, when we have been impure in our thoughts or our actions, in our words or our deeds. For the sake of Jesus Christ, pardon us, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to walk in righteousness and holiness.
Now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward, put forward as propitiation by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. I just want to speak a little bit toward... Uh, that $65 word, propitiation. I don't know if, you've, if you're familiar with that. But the word is, God's word doesn't choose its words uh, flippantly. Let's just say it that way. And the word propitiation that's used here in the ESV, it's also used in uh, King James, uh, some others. And then, and the others like the NLT and the NIV, they don't use propitiation. That's not in our vernacular anymore. You don't hear too many people going, propitiate! (laughs) So, but propitiation is only used three times in the New Testament. And the direct what it directs to is actually the wrath of God. It's an appeasement. It's a satisfying of God's wrath. Now, there are some who mix up the word 
propitiation and expiation, if you've heard that. And they, they tend to use those synonymously, and they're not synonymous. Expiation has to do with taking care of our sins, paying, paying the price in full for the sins that we've created, that we've, uh, that we've done. But propitiation here is talking to the wrath of God from a holy and just God. And I, I think that's uh, kind of a, more than a nuance there. I think it's important. So let's, let's pray real quick, and then we'll get into uh, the confession of our faith. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your wrath has been satisfied, that our sins have been paid in full, that those go hand in hand, Lord, that the Lord Jesus Christ has, has taken care of the wrath that we deserve and that our sins have, have not just been covered, but they've been washed away. We thank you, Lord, for that in Jesus' name. Father, I want to lift up uh, our newest additions to our body, Lord. Uh, Eloise, who has is, who is entered our our little family, and uh, Eden. And we thank you, Lord, for these new additions. We thank you for health of mom and baby. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us to raise them up in the fear of, of you, Lord. I also want to lift up a, a friend of mine from Springfield, my old church. His name is Dell. He heads up a... Um, a group of men who go out and they, and they preach your truth in the streets of, of Springfield right now, Lord. And right now they're under immense pressure as they're in front of uh, Planned Parenthood, as they're trying to reach out to these, these women that are trying to go and, and destroy their babies. They're trying to preach love and truth to them, Lord. And they're receiving a pretty serious backlash right now. Father, I ask that you would protect them and that you would give them, continue to give them boldness, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So in our confession of faith from the Baptist Catechism, the question is asked, what is adoption? The answer is adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number of the family of God and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. That is awesome. Mm -hmm. That is awesome. Second question, what is sanctification? Sanctification is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of God, being made in the image of God. And we are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. You may be seated. Good morning, everyone, again. Um, if you want to turn with me in your Bibles, we'll be back in Romans chapter, chapter 8. 
Romans chapter 8, and we'll be looking this week at verses 12 through 17. I don't know if any of you have seen on our website, um, the sermons are posted there weekly if you ever want to go check them out. And the picture that we've been using for this series has been a couple pictures of, of mountains. It's actually pictures my sister took in Utah, um, the home of my firstborn child. And, you know, as we're kind of thinking about the book of Romans, and specifically Romans 8, I sort of like to think of it as a mountaintop where we see all these great truths expounded on. And so hopefully we've seen that in the last couple weeks in Romans 8 specifically. And we've seen this sort of penultimate verse in Romans 8.1, that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ. And this is Paul speaking to the Romans and to us saying, that there's no condemnation for those that are in Christ, that there's full and complete pardon for those that have been united to Christ by faith. And so we've been looking at that, and we've also been looking at this contrast between those that are in the flesh and those that are in the Spirit. Those that are in the flesh and those that are in the Spirit. And so hopefully we've seen that sort of bore out over the last couple weeks. And so some of you might be thinking in your head, that's great. We've talked about this contrast. It sounds pretty simple, Kendall, right? People are in the flesh or they're in the spirit. And some of you might be thinking, I don't always, it doesn't always feel that simple to me, right? I still struggle with the flesh. I still struggle with my sin, with feeling like I'm a part of God's family for whatever reason. And so Paul this week is going to give us a realistic picture of what living in the Spirit looks like, what life in the Spirit looks like. And it's not as simple as just, you know, you're saved and life is easy and hunky-dory. And so Paul is going to paint, like I said, an honest picture. And we're going to look at two main things this week. If if previously we've been focused on this idea of justification of God, taking away the condemnation that we deserved, this week we're going to be looking at two other benefits that Christ has won for us. And you've seen that, a foretaste of that anyway, in our confession of faith. We're going to be looking at sanctification and adoption. Sanctification and adoption. So that'll be sort of our bullet points for this week, and hopefully we'll see that bear out as we look at the text this week. So if you want to look with me at verse 12, I'll read the passage, pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at God's word this morning. So this is the word of the Lord. Paul says this, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your holy, sufficient word. 
that you have given us everything we need for life and godliness, and that you have spoken at former times and in former ways by the prophets, but now you have spoken to us in your Son. Would we see the great work of Christ and the Spirit this morning, and would you help us, Lord? We are weak, we are frail, and we need the power of God to help us this morning to see these truths, to open our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, that we might not only see and understand, but believe and trust in Christ for salvation. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. So, two things this morning. Like I said, sanctification and adoption. That'll sort of be our bullet points for this week. So, sanctification to start with. Like Daryl said, there's some words in our scriptures that we don't always use very frequently. And so, what is sanctification? What does this word mean? It's sort of a big word, and like I said, we don't use it a lot. So, what is sanctification? What is sanctification? Well, we saw it defined in our confession of faith this morning, but first and foremost, I want to sort of think about it like this. What is sanctification? It is a benefit of redemption. It's a benefit of redemption. What does that mean? (laughs) That's not helpful. We could say it like this, that Christ, as our great prophet, priest, and king, has come He's accomplished redemption, and he won benefits for his people. Benefits, like health insurance or a 401k? No. (laughs) Not those kinds of benefits, right? Other benefits, not earthly benefits, but spiritually heavenly benefits. And so one of those is justification. We've talked about that in weeks past. This is an act of God's free grace where he forgives our sin and counts us righteous Not by our work, but by the work of Christ. And so, sanctification is also a benefit of redemption. And we saw it defined in our Confession of Faith. You could look there again if you wanted to. But it is a work of God's free grace, whereby we are not only renewed, but enabled to die to our sin and to live after righteousness and holiness. And this idea of sanctification is not new to the New Testament. You've probably heard me say that the last couple of weeks. These things aren't new, right? They're in the Old Testament. And this idea of being sanctified is also found in the Old Testament. What does it mean to be sanctified in the Old Testament? It's not just concerned with an ethical purity. That's sometimes how we think about it. But in the Old Testament, if something was sanctified, it was set apart. It was holy unto God. And they would often take a common thing... And through this process of sanctifying it, usually with the sprinkling of blood, it was purified. It was set apart for a holy purpose. So this is the Old Testament meaning of sanctified. And so as we come to this idea of sanctification, it's important to have that in the background. And so Paul begins in verse 12 and he says these words, so then, so then, or in light of. So he's referencing back to everything he said in verses 1 through 11. In light of all of these great truths of God's work of justification, there being no condemnation for those that are in Christ. In light of all this, this is true. Not only in light of what God has done, but who he is, this is true. That not only have we been saved from the penalty of sin, right? There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. That's the penalty of sin. The penalty of sin has been removed. 
But Paul is about to say that we're not only removed from the penalty of sin, but the power of sin. From the power of sin. So not only the penalty, but the power of sin. And he sort of fleshes this out. He says that we, are, that we were debtors to the flesh. What does this mean? Debtors to the flesh. That all we could do in our flesh is obey the flesh, right? We saw that in weeks previous. Those that are in the flesh cannot to submit to God's law. They cannot submit. They cannot please God. This is what it means to be in the flesh. And so this word translated here, debtors, can sometimes be translated obligated. We're no longer obligated to serve the flesh. We're no longer obligated to serve the flesh. And so this can be sort of tricky because there's a lot of people that maybe externally look like they have it all together, right? They've um, beat themselves up enough to the point where externally they look like they have it all together. That doesn't look like they're indebted to the flesh. It looks like they're doing all right. <laughs> and we'll, we'll talk about this a little bit later. But Paul says, this is what you were. You were indebted to the flesh. But now you are no longer debtors to the flesh. For he says, he gives the conclusion of this, that for those who live according to the flesh will die. Because he says, if you live according to the flesh, you will die. You can see that in verse 13. That to live according to the flesh, the end of that is death. There's no hope of life if you live after your sinful desires and pursue those things. That the end of those things is death. And so Paul is saying that we are no longer debtors to the flesh. We are no longer debtors to the flesh. And... It's important to think about this, right? What does it mean to be indebted to the flesh? How can we think about this? What does the flesh do? The flesh promises life. It promises life in all these other things, in our passions, in our comfort, in our health, in our wealth, whatever it is. The flesh says that if you have this, then you have security, then you have hope, then you have peace. But... As we've been going through the Ten Commandments, we see that to pursue the flesh is ultimately what it promises, what the flesh promises, it can't deliver on, right? It promises these things and might even fulfill those things for a moment, but after that, there's guilt, there's shame, there's ultimately death. And so those that are in the flesh cannot please God. We know that. And Paul says this somewhere else in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he says this. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This is a pretty interesting list. There's not only great big sins that we think of, but also greed, right? How often have we been greedy in our hearts? And so Paul says, don't be deceived that if we pursue our flesh, if we pursue these areas of sin, there's no hope of inheriting the kingdom of God. But what's he say after that? And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, and by the Spirit of our God. 
What is Paul saying there? That for the believer, there's not only this promise of justification, of having our sin taken away, but there's also the promise of sanctification, this process of God renewing us in the image of God and enabling us to pursue him and live after holiness. Paul says, such were some of you, but you were washed, you were justified, you were sanctified. That by, as we talked about last week, this indwelling of the Spirit, we have power to fight our sin and to pursue righteousness. And so this doctrine of sanctification that we're talking about, two things to say. First, it is a great hope for the Christian. It is a great hope for the Christian. Why? Because the power and dominion of sin has been broken. And I don't think we think about that a lot, right? The power and dominion of sin has been broken. That what Christ did on the cross was not just make us right with God, legally, in terms of justifying us. He actually gives us his spirit and renews us to pursue after him. Right? That's amazing. So this is a great hope for the Christian Yes, the presence of sin still remains. We still struggle with our sin. The old man clings closely, as our confession says. Corruption remains. But the power and the dominion of sin has been broken. We no longer have to serve our sin. We're no longer debtors to our flesh. But we can now serve God with a new heart. So we've been renewed. We've been able to fight our sin. And I love what the, what the catechism says there. It says it's an act of God's free grace. That sanctification, I think, sometimes can get misunderstood as something we do, right? God justifies us, and now it's up to you to sanctify yourself. You've got to work enough. You've got to pull yourself up by your bootstraps. But the catechism is saying that it's a work of God's free grace, that it is actually God working in us, as Philippians says, to will and to work for his good pleasure. So this is a great hope for the Christian, but it's also a great warning. It's also a great warning that this side of heaven, the Christian life is a fight. The Christian life is a fight. Paul goes on to say in verse 13, the second part of that, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. If you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live that by the spirit, by the help of the spirit alone, right? All of grace, the spirit enables us to fight our sin. So it's a warning that we should not get complacent in the Christian life, that there's no such thing as pet sins. I don't know if anybody knows what I mean when I say that, but think of a pet sin as something you kind of, you nourish and you keep it safe, right? Like you would a pet. And so we have these certain sins. And so sometimes we justify it by saying, well, I'm a good husband, I go to work, I provide for my family. We sort of justify it with all these other ways. I'm allowed to do this thing that's sinful. Or I'm a good wife, I've done this. And so we justify our sin. And Paul is saying, no, we need to kill our sin. We need to put it to death. And there's a great book by the Puritan, John Owen. The book is called The Mortification of Sin. He wrote a whole book on this verse alone. And there's a famous line in there where he says this. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. What does he mean? We have to be very careful here because some people have taken this verse and verses like it to sort of mean that 
there's a cause and effect relationship between sanctification and our ultimate salvation. That if we sanctify ourselves enough, then we'll be saved. And that's to sort of flip the gospel on its head. So what is, what is Paul saying here? What does John Owen mean when he says that? It's not cause and effect. It is means and end. Sanctification is the means by which God brings us to eternal life. So he not only justifies us, but he sanctifies us. He renews in us a new heart that enables to walk after him. And I wasn't really going to bring this up, but some of you might be familiar with the, um, the apologist, Robbie Zacharias. He's been in the news recently. He passed away, I think, several months ago or a year ago. He was a prominent part of my early Christian walk. He was an apologist that spoke to unbelievers about the gospel, about the truths of Christ, and argued with people about why Christianity is valid. But after his death, there was these reports that came out that he had done unspeakable things to women and overseas and all sorts of things that we can't even talk about here. So not to talk so much about that, but just to say that this idea of killing our sin is very important because on the outside, we can look all together, right? Ravi Zacharias, this great man, many people thought he was amazing, that he looked up to him and, you know, a lot of us did. But he did not kill his sin. <laughs> he had a pet sin, and so he had this facade. You know, I'm not going to speak about the nature of his salvation, but we have no reason to think that he repented. Even months before he died, he was still involved in this. All that to say, it is possible to look good on the outside, like the Pharisees. But Christ called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And so... We must take this seriously. We must take sanctification seriously. And we must rely on the Spirit of God to put our sin to death. And be reminded that it's all of grace. That it's God working in us. So this is the doctrine of sanctification. And then we come to the second part of our, um, our message today. And that's adoption. That's adoption. That not only has God justified us, renewed us in sanctification, but has adopted us into his family that we who were rebels of God living contrary to him have now been welcomed into God's family this is the idea of adoption and when we see this confirmed in verse verse 14 if you want to look there with me Paul says this for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God and then he shows this contrast for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Paul's saying we didn't receive the spirit of slavery. What does he mean there? The spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. That before we were Christians, whether we wanted to admit it or not, we were enslaved not only to our sin, but to fear. Meaning, we knew that when we sinned, it was wrong. And we knew, deep down, even though we tried to numb it with drugs or alcohol or comforts or money, that deep down, what we did was wrong and that it deserves punishment. And so there's this constant sense of slavery to not only sin, but fear. And so Paul is saying that to be adopted into God's family is to be 
not given a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, meaning every time we sin, oh no, am I in God's family? Oh no, is he going to punish me? It's to actually be welcomed into God's family. It's to receive this spirit of adoption. And this is a precious truth, and I think it might be one of the most, not misunderstood, but the most neglected of these great doctrines, these benefits that Christ has won. I think it was J.I. Packer that said, it might even be above justification, right? Because what is justification? It is God pardoning our sins and giving us the righteousness of Christ. And the truth is that God could justify us, but still keep us at arm's length. He could make us right, he could give us Christ's righteousness, but he could still say, it's up to you to figure it out. But he doesn't do that. He welcomes us into God's family. He adopts us. And so we are sons and daughters of God, not as Christ is, right? Christ is the only begotten son of God, but we are sons and daughters by adoption, by adoption. So God has not left us at arm's length. He has brought us into his family. And so what does this mean? It means that we're no longer slaves to fear, as I said, that we've been adopted. And I wanted to read what our confession says on this, because I think it's really helpful for seeing the, the multifacetedness, multifacetedness, however you say that word, of adoption. This is what it says. All those that are justified, God vouchsafed in and for the sake of his only son, Jesus Christ, to make partakers of the grace of adoption by which we are taken into the number and enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. And then he just rattles off these benefits. Have his name put upon us. Receive the spirit of adoption. Have access to the throne of grace with boldness. Are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. Are pitied, protected, and provided for. And chastened by him as by a father. Yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. What's the confession getting at? That we're not just adopted as sons and sort of put in the corner like the redheaded stepchild or something. That we are adopted as sons and daughters. We're giving all the privileges and benefits of sons and daughters of God. That we are pitied, protected, and provided for. And so, we're not only adopted, but as Paul says in this verse, that we're also made heirs. Not only heirs of God, but fellow heirs with Christ. And so, this should bring us great assurance this morning. This should bring us great assurance this morning that we're not defined first and foremost by these earthly things, right? Sometimes it can be easy in our culture, especially to define ourselves by earthly external things, right? Firstly, I'm a mother, or I'm a professional, or I'm a father, or I'm whatever, right? We can tend to define ourselves by these things. And Paul is helping us to see that first and foremost, we're defined as sons and daughters of God, that we've been adopted into God's family by faith. And I'm reminded of that great verse in 1 John where he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. And so as we step away this morning, I was just thinking about this. If someone was to ask you, what's so great about being a Christian? What's so great about being a Christian? What's the benefits of being a Christian? 
I think 50 years ago, it would have been easy, right? Think 1950s, something like that. There was a lot of external benefits to being a Christian, right? Everybody went to church. It was what you did. You maybe were in a nice family, you had a nice job, and you went to church, and there was sort of all these external benefits of being a Christian. And in 2021, it's not so apparent. These external benefits are slowly slipping away, if we want to say it like that. And so what is our anchor? What's the thing that we hold on to? What is so great about being a Christian? What's the benefits of being a Christian? And there's some out there that would say the benefits of being a Christian are the promises of health and wealth and prosperity and all these external things. But as we look at Romans 8, we see that the benefits of being a Christian are heavenly. They're eternal. They're unchanging. And we've looked at some of these already. Justification, adoption, sanctification. That even though I'm a sinner in the sight of God, that he's justified me. He's made me right with him. And I didn't deserve it. That even though I was the prodigal son or daughter who had squandered my inheritance, he's welcomed me back into his family. So all these great benefits of being a Christian, and these things are heavenly and eternal. And just finally to say this, this is immensely practical. This is immensely practical. You might say, Kindle, that was a lot of doctrine. These big words, sanctification, right? Adoption. But hopefully we can see that these are immensely practical, that our doctrine or what we know about God should lead into right devotion of God or how we respond to God in light of that. That we have been adopted into God's family. That we're not cast off, as our confession says, right? It's so easy for us to think of God as believers, as this, this you know, God that's angry at us all the time. <laughs> that when we sin, he's just ready to cast us off. But for those that have been adopted... We have hope. We've been welcomed in and will never be cast off. And some of us, I think, who maybe grew up in a home without a father or with not great fathers, it can be hard for us to understand what does this mean. But as we look at the scriptures, we see God is a good father. He takes care of his children. He doesn't cast us off, but he disciplines us. He lovingly does that. And you can think about your own children if you have them, that you would never just cast them off because they messed up. You would lovingly discipline them and show them the right way to go. And that's how God is with us. And we can also remember that by the Spirit, we are being sanctified. That by the Spirit, we are being sanctified. What does that mean? That when we're struggling with our sin, as we look at our Christian life and we're not happy with where we're at, we're struggling with all these different things, we can go to God for help. And <laughs> we don't have to have these long, elaborate prayers. We can say... God, help me. God, help me. By your spirit, help me to live for you and to not give in to the sin or whatever this is. And I think it's amazing. Why do we come to church? Why do we do all this? How are we changed? How are we changed? And how are we saved? The answer to that question is not two different things. We're not saved by the gospel and then left to figure it out on our own. The same thing that saves us, the gospel of Christ, is the same thing that changes us. As 1 Corinthians says, that you are being changed from one degree of glory to the next by beholding the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we see Christ in his word, we're changed. 
We're not only saved, but we're changed from one degree of glory to the next. And that's why it's so important that each week and in our lives privately that we behold Christ, that we look to the word, that we see the gospel of Christ, and we behold him by the Spirit, being assured of our justification, our adoption, and we can walk in sanctification in obedience to God. So as we close today and as we prepare for the Lord's Supper, we're reminded of this visible word that Christ has given us, right? Not just the audible word, but the visible word. And I think for some people in some traditions, this meal is not done frequently. It's maybe done once a year or twice a year. And so why do we do this every week? Doesn't that make it less sacred, some would say. But we believe the preaching of the word is sacred, that the singing of songs is sacred. And so we do those every week. So why not be reminded of Christ's sacrifice on the cross for us. Um, And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to come to the table and we're reminded that this is a means of grace, that God has not left us to our own devices, but he has sent a son that's poured out his blood, sanctified us, adopted us, redeemed us. And so we come rejoicing, but also confessing our sins. And so if you're not a believer, we ask that you don't come, that you sit and contemplate these things, that you think about the gospel of God. And Paul gives a very stern warning. He says that if you eat and drink in an unworthy manner, you drink judgment upon yourself. And so we wouldn't want that to be the case. So come confessing your sin, but also come rejoicing, knowing that God has done a great work, that this is not a meal for the strong, but a meal for the weak. And so I'm going to pray for us and then we'll, we'll come forward. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your holy word where we're reminded that you have come, that you have taken on flesh the word of God incarnate, fully God and fully man, to make atonement for our sins that you could not sweep our sin under the cosmic rug, but it must be paid for, and either by us or by another. And you have sent your Son to pay the penalty that we deserve to shed the blood so that we might be made holy, not by our works, but by the works of another. Help us to trust in Jesus Christ this morning, to look to him by faith, and as we come to the table... May we be assured of our salvation, that for all of those that have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone, that they would be assured that they are children of God, that they are provided for and protected and have hope and are sealed for the day of redemption. Help us to do this by faith alone. And would you give us strength this morning? In your name we pray. Amen. To a formal line, we'll come forward, go back to your seat, and we'll take it together.
reminded of our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread, and after he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave thanks, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. And so we do this remembering that Christ has broken his body so that ours might be spared. And in the same way, he took the cup and he said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so we drink this living wine, reminded that Christ's blood was spilled so that our life might be spared. Amen. If you want to stand with me, we will respond by singing hymn number 216, Solid Rock.
giving of our tithes and offerings. Every week we're reminded all that God has given us, not only spiritual benefits, but um, financial ones. And so we respond as an act of worship, reminded of what God has done for us. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that God loves a cheerful giver. And so we're not called to give out of obligation or to repay God or to earn something from God, but out of joy for what he's given us. So we'll now receive offerings. Please stand with me as we sing the doxology. <clears throat> Praise God from whom all blessings flow. before the presence of his glory with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace as you go. Or, um, one quick announcement. We'll have a members meeting in about five to ten minutes, so take time to get some more coffee or donuts. Come back here. Members will be the ones participating, but anybody that's not is welcome to come and watch. So be back in five.